Welcome to Retro Enjoy your voyage. Howdy and welcome to Retro Groove. I'm Adam C. And I'm Liam D. And this is a podcast where we talk about music that stands the test of time, the albums and artists that have shaped and reshaped the sonic landscape, as well as covering new music from those artists. I'd like to welcome you to our maiden voyage. This is our first episode, and I appreciate you being along with us for this adventure. Today we're going to be chatting about what we've been listening to recently, any recent purchases that we've made. We're going to go through some icebreaker questions to get to know each other and allow you, the listener, to get to know us a little bit. And then on the flip side, on side B, we're going to cover some new releases from some uh, well-known artists. And then we're going to do an album spotlight on the new Black Keys record, Delta Cream. And uh, we're going to talk about I'm sure plenty of other things as they come up and I'm really really excited uh Liam I want to thank you for for uh, agreeing to do this with me yeah I'm excited to do this too man I love music uh I have many interesting relationships with it um and uh can't wait to to chat a bunch about everything yeah definitely so to kick it off what have you been listening to recently any any uh interesting recent purchases yeah, so um, a lot of my current kind of listening habits, I have a six-year-old daughter, um, so a lot of my listening is framed around both my schedule and also my time with her. Um, so it's a lot of the more palatable or what I think are more palatable um, kind of classic music that I kind of wished that I was maybe exposed to when I was a little younger or that right. I, I was hearing on the radio um, and might not be hearing it as much anymore. Um, she also hears current pop radio, so there's some of that, but I've been throwing on a lot of Queen, um, some Weezer, nice. Oasis, uh, Michael Jackson. She listened to a bunch of ABBA when she was younger. You know, there's just that stuff that's nice. like very easy to listen to. My wife likes Elton John. Like that's another one where it's just like you can throw that on and, and she loves it in the car and now she's singing along. Um, so oh, yeah. it's a bunch of that. Um, as far as buying stuff. Um, I picked up the new Lord Huron album. They're amazing. Like just this beautiful kind of nicely curated, uh, ethereal rock, um, that's got like stories to it. I love a good story. Um, and, uh, I picked up uh, a couple of video game soundtracks. Um, just trying to snag those when I can, uh, on vinyl, you know, the licensing mess that exists in that world makes the vinyl recordings and releases of those kind of erratic and they're yeah. like bootleggy. Um, and so I've definitely had a few um, like things that have have come and gone without me even knowing about it. And I've been pretty bummed about it. There's an Earthworm Jim vinyl that apparently came out like four years ago that I just found out about recently and 
looked it up and it goes for $200 and it's just like, oh, I, I wow. can't pull my, pull the trigger on something like that. But if yeah. I see it for 30 or 40 bucks, when it's initially released, I got to go for it. So like exactly. Celeste and Hollow Knight, like some of these beautiful indie games that I've played recently, I grabbed those. Oh yeah. And then some of the like cover and interpretive, um, like the Zelda and chill series. I got the second one of that recently and it's just a good thing to throw on. Really nice. Yeah. yeah, I have that first Zelda in chill. And it's funny, it, it, we were talking about things, sp- particularly the game soundtracks, how they just tend to skyrocket in price because they're probably low numbers and, you know, don't get a lot of represses. Right. Um, the, I got that first Zelda in chill for like $7 on clearance directly from the Materia Collective website. And now it's going for something like 70 or 80 bucks on, on Discog. So it's... <laughs> It's it's just insane how much they tend to skyrocket very soon after they come out. So good on you for picking up that Zelda and chill too. If it's still available, I might need to try to snag that before it starts starts the climb. It is, yeah, and and I feel like uh, there's a kinship with the video game community that you and I are both a part of, obviously, um, in that sense, um, which I think you're also experiencing outside of video game soundtracks, right? But, like, you are definitely having this. If you don't pull the trigger immediately, you may never be able to have this thing again. Um, oh, yeah. And that At scarcity is tough. not for a huge, you know, price of entry. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. What about you? What are you picked up? Uh, well, probably too much, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the main ones, I was finally able to secure um, the fully analog copy of the new My Bloody Valentine release of Loveless. Uh, just came out on the 21st, and uh, they actually reissued um, all three of their studio albums. And... I had actually given up. It was one of those kind of things where the pre-orders sold out almost instantly. And then, you know, I was seeing pre-orders on eBay going for $100 plus. So, yeah, (laughs) I had basically given up and I said, "Uh, uh, you know, maybe someday I'll pay $100 or $150 for one of the good pressings because there's a lot of unofficial bootleg pressings of this album. It's just a really interesting and unusual history as far as the, the pressings of this album go. Uh, it's got somewhat of a legendary status, um, particularly for, um, you know, guitar folks and um, indie folks. And I'm really happy to have finally gotten a good quality pressing uh, so thank you. Shout out to Breakaway Records in North Austin because they had a handful of copies and they let me go ahead and buy it over the phone when I called them and asked them if they had any. Nice. And uh, I actually don't even have it in my hand yet. I've paid for it. I need to go pick it up either later today or tomorrow. Um, but I'm really happy to have that. Just a really interesting and beautiful album. It's hard to believe that came out in 1991. Wow. Yeah, and shout out to Domino too for for like acquiring the catalog and putting this thing back out there too. I know that that album yeah. has like a, a just as we were talking about legal messes on the soundtrack side, like yeah. that album's just I mean like the the amount of money that went into producing that album and then the band kind of fell apart after that for 20 years or something. Um, I'm sure that behind the scenes, um, the recoupment and contractual mess that led to it being reissued, I guess, what is that? 
30, 20 something years later, I'm doing the math. Like it's, it's pretty crazy that it, it took that long. Yeah. And I don't know if it was like, Hey, it's the 30 year anniversary mm. kind of thing. So they pushed for it, but yeah, I'm, I'm also really, really glad that they finally did that. Cause as much as I love the album and I have a personal connection to it, it's not one of those albums that I have to have so badly that I'd be willing to spend 150 plus on it. So I'm just really glad to have gotten it. And then speaking of bands that disappeared for a couple of decades, I picked up uh, a little bit late to the party on this one, but I picked up We Will Always Love You by the Avalanches. And um, I was a fan of them before, you know, I I first heard them when I was working at Newbury Comics um, back in 2000, 2001. And uh, that album, uh, Since I Left You, was on repeat in the store. And so I kind of I have that in the back of my head a lot as a soundtrack that plays, particularly Frontier Psychiatrist, just because just it's so crazy with all of the samples cutting in and out. Mm-hmm. But this album really surprised me in that they've gone in a different direction where instead of being, you know, almost entirely sample based, the the samples are there. And then what they layer on top of that is, you know, live uh, instrumentation and a um, bunch of guest artists coming in and singing. And I'm also a, a huge sucker for uh, concept albums. Yeah. <laughs> and this one in particular, um, you could you could argue that it's a concept album, lots of overarching themes and um, spoken passages that come in and out in different parts of the of the record. Um, there's, uh, actual recordings in the, the album from the, uh, I'm, I'm going to hopefully stay accurate on this. I'm (laughs) not super well versed in, in this, but the, there's a, there's a gold disc that, uh, they produced and I'm going to have to look up, um, this information cause I'm, I'm gonna, I'm going to say it wrong. It's a lot of information, but they put out, they created this album um, with the assumption that some extraterrestrial beings will find this disc. Mm. And so they created this album of recordings and information that basically went to space in anticipation of, you know, at some point they're going to find this album, some other, you know, species or life form, and they're going to be able to play it somehow and find out all about Earth. So it's called The Golden Record, and I'm actually on the NASA website. Yeah, it's the, it was on the Voyager. It was back in the 70s is what you're talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it was selected by uh, for NASA by a committee chaired by Carl Sagan, and each record is encased in a protective aluminum jacket together with a cartridge and a needle, uh, instructions in symbolic language explaining the origin of the spacecraft and indicate how the record is to be played. Mm. And the, the audio um, contains spoken greetings, 
In a bunch of different languages, I kind of remember, right? A bunch yeah. of different languages. Yeah. I remember that uh, they put this out. Like You could buy this on CD, which is really funny to think of. Um, back when, yeah. I was, when I was a kid, I remember there was a story about it, and you could buy it on CD. Um, and I've gone back, and I've, I've looked at it. I mean, it's been years since, but I remember like scouring through eBay random stuff and seeing posts about it. Yeah, it's, it's just a really cool... Um, and they sort of built... And even the album cover is um, the director of the project to put that together. And of course, you know, the name is escaping me now. But there's little snippets of that throughout the uh, throughout the album, as well as, you know, broadcast transmissions and things like that. And the overarching theme of space, light, life and death, love and all of that. And it's just so much beauty and overarching uh, imagery in it. It's, it's one of those life-changing albums for me. I'm, I'm really kind of obsessed with it. And it's one of those albums where I have to kind of make sure that I've carved out the time to listen to the entire thing. Mm. Because once I start it, there's just no way that I'm going to be able to stop listening to it. Right. So, and you know, those are few and far between. What else did I purchase? Uh, Breakaway Records, speaking to them, they just recently opened back up for in-store uh, shopping, whereas before it was curbside only. It feels so, so good. I, it, it feels so good to be in a record store again. Amazing. <laughs> it's really amazing. It's, it's, it's something that just is therapy for me. Mm-hmm. So Same. being able to go in person is just such a different experience than, you know, looking through an online catalog or, right. you know, responding to Instagram posts like, Hey, this is for sale. So I'm really, really happy about that. And I ended up picking up a couple of electric light orchestra albums, trying to fill out my collection. Cause I am a huge ELO fan have been since I was a kid with my parents having a new world record in the house. And I picked up El Dorado and uh, Time, Time being the one album, it's their 1981 album that I was, you know, actually familiar with. Not really familiar with El Dorado, so I'm excited to dive into that. And so with those two purchases, I now have seven of the 14 ELO studio albums. And that is, that is not... That is decidedly not counting the Xanadu soundtrack. <laughs> Which probably counts, right? Like, it is their music, or at least partially their music, uh, composed yeah, for that. Yeah, I think they're all that. over side B. Yeah, yeah. Side A is Olivia Newton-John, and then side B is is mostly ELO, um, with the, the title track being at the very end. And I, you know, I'm not against picking that up, but I'm not going to consider it an ELO studio album. <laughs> right. You don't I, like you're, if you're going for complete collection, maybe. But if you're just going for the studio albums, that makes sense. I there's there's a Tom Petty album that's in a similar boat, although I think that's entirely composed by him for an Ed Burns movie called uh, She's the One. And I'm not even that familiar with, uh, oh, with that's right. the album, mm-hmm. the, the music from that movie, but I've definitely seen and heard conversations about people about whether or not that's technically in the like Tom Petty discography as a Tom Petty album, or if it's just a soundtrack that's got a lot of music that he composed for it. It's a, it, it's a nuance. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So I got those. Uh, I also picked up, um, a 1975 Tara Hout pressing of wish you were here. Nice. 
um, which I actually picked up from a friend of mine back east. Shout out to Eric. He um, he does uh, a lot of uh, record sales and he does live Facebook shows where he sells records and stuff like that. And he uh, invited me to one of his shows and I, I bought a few records and that was one of them that I was really, really excited about. So I'm, I'm really glad to have that. Should be in the mail on the way to me as we speak. Okay, you haven't, um, you haven't received it yet. Haven't yeah. received it yet. I want. I was going to ask. One of my there's favorites. A, there's a poster inside a lot of those. I don't know which pressing pressings had it and which ones don't. But there's like this really big like green moonscape, I think, or something pre, uh, poster inside that I always liked. That was in my parents' pressing, and I have it around here somewhere. So I'm I'm curious to see if it has the poster inside because there's all those like I will report back. Yeah, there's fun little inserts in to some of those old records that are cool to kind of stumble across when you pick something up and then you pull it out and this other thing comes out and you're like oh i didn't even know i was buying this yeah yeah that's awesome yeah. i love that stuff uh, the avalanches album has an has a nice big poster inside too it's like a big multicolored moon and um i would i would probably frame it and put it up but it's got like the creases in it because right. it's folded over itself so right. um yeah i love that kind of stuff um bunch of other random, you know, small purchases. I like to go thrifting and look for vintage audio equipment and stuff like that. And so I had got a couple of good finds there. Um, I found a copy of Cream's Goodbye. Cool. I found, uh, this is kind of funny. So I found a copy of Alice Cooper's, I've got it right here. I've got a copy of Alice Cooper's Constrictor. Cool. It's the it's the one with him, you know, being choked out by a python right. on the cover. Right, as he it's does. It's actually got it's got an Amoeba Records price tag on it. Oh wow. Which cool. is kind of cool. Um, Especially in Texas, you found it locally in Texas, right? Yeah, at a Goodwill store. Wow. Yeah. Some somebody made the trek from California. The other thing that made this kind of a hilarious find is that. Inside the uh, jacket is not only, you know, the record that is supposed to be in there, Good. but a copy of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road oh my God. by Elton John. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I see. I could use that right about now. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm on the lookout for a sleeve for uh, or a jacket for, for Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. That's awesome. I don't know where you buy just, you know, record jackets without the disc in them. It's kind of like, you know, where do you buy just a left shoe? But probably a garage so I've got sale. That. Yard sale <laughs> that or was something. A two, yeah, yeah, yard sales. <laughs> um, actually, I think I need to check at Piranha Records in Round Rock, Texas, because they actually have a section of just jackets only that don't have the discs in them. Cool. So I'll have to go. That's also a good place if you want to, you know, put artwork up on the wall. Um, just to find album covers and stuff like that. That's a good, good way to get that. Um, so that was kind of funny. Um, some other things, but nothing too noteworthy. Um, in, in the same vein that you were talking about, obviously I'm in the car a lot with my girls. I've got two daughters and the older one is now, you know, about to be 10 and starting to express more interest in, you know, having her, she, I, she actually just recently asked me to give her access to Apple music on okay. her phone. Cool. So that was cool. Um, and I had a moment the other day we were listening to plastic beach by so gorillas in the car. And it's just one, it's just one that we have on pretty regularly. And, um, a song ended and 
she heard, she, I heard from the back seat, dad, can we hear that one again? Nice. And it's like, she wanted to hear that. And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> success. Yeah. So that <laughs> was a cool awesome. little moment. Yeah. That's and awesome. And of course I've been listening to the new black keys album. Um, and we'll talk about that on the flip side. But, um, before we go too much further, we kind of just very recently met me and Liam mm-hmm. um, in the Retrologic uh, Discord group, um, where we found that we have you know mutual mutual uh, fanboy status for you know records and yeah. and music, and um, so we started talking and we hit it off, and that's where the idea for the podcast came from. So. We are going to do some icebreaker questions, mm-hmm. and not only does that allow Liam and I to get to know each other, but you, the listener, to get to know us a little bit better as well. So do you want to hop into these icebreaker questions? Yeah, I think so. And I think a, a good spot to start um, is kind of at the beginning, which is um, like how you feel or recall that you... Um, were either exposed to like popular recorded music or, or if there was a certain type of music that you had somebody uh, like slip you an album from at some point where you, it just kind of opened your eyes in a different way. I wonder how you like started engaging with it. Cause we all played or a lot of us played instruments. And so we, yeah, we knew some classical stuff and, you know, row, row, row your boat or whatever. But like when you actually discover the world of, produced pop music as a, as a, as a lump, um, it can be, it's impactful and it can be like a, a wild experience. Yeah. Oh yeah. It can, it can kind of shape the early years of your life. For sure. Um, for me, I think like probably most people, my, my earliest popular music exposure was through my parents and, you know, I was born in 1982. So I was a kid in the, in the mid eighties through, through all of the eighties. And when you were in the car in the eighties, you listened to the radio Mm -hmm. because we didn't have cell phones. I personally didn't have a game boy or anything. Um, there were no iPads. So you listened to the radio and I can be, I remember being very, very young and hearing, you know, bands like Boston, uh, I remember hearing Holland Oats. So I have I have very early memories of these songs and g- them giving me kind of certain feelings that maybe I didn't quite understand yet, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it impacted me enough that I can still remember being in the car at maybe four years old, five years old, and hearing these songs. And I remember to this day hearing those songs for the first time. Cool. So in addition to the radio, you know, my parents had albums at home, um, you know, Boston, like I mentioned, uh, electric light orchestra. My mom was a huge James Taylor fan. So there was always James Taylor, uh, being played. So, uh, some moody blues and, and stuff like that. My mom loves moody blues, (laughs) man. How can you not love the moody blues? Yeah. Yeah. So those are my kind of. Uh, early sparks cool. got getting to know, you know, the, the realm of music outside of children's music. Yeah. And, um, so I feel like I was thankfully in a, in a prime position to be introduced to, to some really good stuff early on. And that set me, I think on a pretty good path. 
Yeah, I, I had a similar thing um, where, you know, I had my, my, I remember MTV being on in the house. I was born in 84. Um, so my recollection is definitely like very end of the 80s, but mainly early 90s. Um, but um, I remember MTV being on. Um, my my dad was big on ZZ Top and Skinnerd and Crosby, Stills and Nash. Nice. So I, I grew up hearing that stuff at home and understanding it and liking like my mom loves the beach boys so i was like indoctrinated early and and actually never lost my love my love for them um there were definitely some times when i thought that the music that my parents listened to was lame and i of course (laughs) i had somebody slip me some punk records in like middle school into high school and i was like okay here we go yeah um and like that drove me to then like I'm going to play power chords and be in a band and whatever. Um, but yeah, I remember, um, so I didn't have my own radio for whatever reason. Um, but my sister did, someone gave her uh, a radio with two cassette, uh, decks on it. Didn't have a microphone and, uh, but she didn't really use it. And so I would swipe it. It was this pink and yellow thing. Um, and I'd sit there and I'd listen to the radio in my room and I'd realize that like, if I popped a cassette tape in, I could record these songs and then I could listen to them whenever I wanted to. And I remember hearing, this is such a random one, but I remember hearing uh, James Brown's Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Like I distinctly remember like feeling really excited because I, I hit record at just the right time where like I captured it perfectly. And then I could like go back and listen to that as, as, as many times as I wanted to. Um, and so I remember like riding my bike to the, the CVS down the block and getting, it was like a three pack of cassette tapes and just sitting there listening to the radio when I had time or whatever. And just like trying to grab cool songs that I could just listen back to. And I didn't know what I was listening to. I didn't, I don't even remember the station that I was listening to. It was like just the general whatever, but just pulling songs because I wanted to own them. And I wasn't familiar at that point. I was probably like eight, seven. I wasn't familiar with going to a record store yet. I didn't have the, right. the wall or coconuts or whatever. I think that was a localized thing to New York, but um, I didn't no, have I remember a record coconuts. store. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. That's funny. I remember doing almost the exact same thing. And one of the things that I remember being so frustrating is when the DJ is talking over like the first 20 seconds of the song. And then the other thing that would happen to me from time to time is I would get a song and I'd be like, yes, I finally got that song I was trying to record. And then the tape would end before the song is over. <laughs> so, ah, uh, so yeah, that, that was a different time for sure. And I remember doing the same thing with, um, music videos. Um, you know, we didn't actually have cable. We didn't have MTV until probably the mid nineties, but then, you know, when you had shows like 120 minutes that would play more, um, you know, edgy or, or indie kind of stuff, alternative, I would record the music videos onto VHS off the TV. And that's a completely foreign concept, you know, or maybe has been for a couple generations now, but, um, that's, that's what I did. Uh, at least in, in the, in the nineties. Do you remember any of the music videos that you recorded? Uh, quite a few. Um, I remember, 
I remember Sonic Youth. Oh, wow. I remember, yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely remember, 120 minutes because that's like you're not seeing that during regular MTV. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, I was. I really wasn't a fan of, you know, kind of normal daytime or primetime MTV. Uh, but at that point in my, that's when I was going through my rebellious phase. I'm only going to listen to music that makes my parents angry. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just noisy stuff like Sonic Youth and... Um, I'm kind of drawing a blank right now. I've got to kind of dig back through the memory banks and try to remember all the the music videos that I recorded. Yeah. Um, a lot of live performances. Yeah. Um, I remember recording. I, I actually recorded the broadcast of uh, Nirvana Unplugged. Oh, wow. I remember that. So, yeah, just stuff like that. I used to, and then I used to love live performances, and it was always kind of kind of a rare treat on MTV to um, see a live performance. And so whenever they did those, whether it was, you know, when they had the stupid spring break week and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know, they would have live bands right. uh, play and they would broadcast it. And so I used to record those because that more so than the videos is what really fascinated me is the live performances. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I, I, it's funny that I didn't remember until you said it, but I do remember recording um, uh, Money for Nothing by the Dire Straits because that music video is just so oh, yeah. cool. That 3D animation at the time was just so funky and cool. And I was into video games and it kind of looked like a video game. Yeah, and so I it was definitely, very video yeah, I definitely remember having that on a VHS tape and watching it a couple times. That's really funny. Like, I, I wouldn't that. have remembered it unless you just said it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I, I didn't think about it before we, we started recording. So I'm, I'm going to have to really think back and remember all of the, I wish I still had those tapes, Yeah, but, um, that was definitely an, an interesting period in music history. Do you want to hit one more of these questions? Yeah. What about, um, what about the first, uh, cause you're, you're, you, you play music, right? So what about the first kind of, um, song or, or band or something that you played on, on, uh, on, on a guitar or on an instrument that wasn't like in a school setting? Yeah. Um, that probably would have been Stone Temple Pilots. Wow. I, I remember taking my mom's acoustic guitar and working out, I think it was plush and that it, it was, that was the first kind of song that I was into as, as a, you know, preteen that I wanted to play. Did you feel like you could, like, it was just like, you heard it and you're like, Oh, I think I can do that. Or you're just like, I'm going to, I don't care. I'm going to figure out, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get it done. Yeah. No, there was something about it that sounded like it was like the guitar part specifically was simple to me. Right. Now, let me full disclosure. I'm really only talking about like the intro. Sure. The ban ban, you know what I mean? <laughs> Once you get into the verse, there's some funky chords in there that I couldn't figure out, but I didn't care. I just wanted to play that intro. Yeah. So, I, that's the first song that I have memory of where I sat down and, you know, this was basically pre-internet or, you know, the internet wasn't anything like what it is today where you could just, "Oh, I wonder how to play this song" and you look up the tabs. That didn't exist. Yeah. So, I had to sit there and work it out. Yeah. Um the only other one that that I can remember really nailing was 
one of the songs off of the first self-titled Foo Fighters record. All right. And um, oh, it was it was Big Me. Okay. Because it just has like simple chords, and because it's not distorted, you can kind of hear the chords. Mm-hmm. So I was able to take you know the the basic chords that I had learned and work it out. And so that's that's probably the second one that I can remember really being able to play the entire song start to finish. Cool. Yeah, I definitely. What about you? I had a similar kind of thing again a little bit a little bit later. Um, I mean, Green Day just kind of took my my school and uh, my group of friends by storm at the time oh yeah um and so so my dad he he I mean he plays like nylon string classical guitar he's, he's fantastic and um and had some electric guitars sitting around from like bands that he played in like local bands in the yeah. 80s um and so i remember swiping i still have i have it sitting over here it's an old roland jazz oh, chorus nice. amp um, and he had this like knockoff, Amazing. knockoff Black Beauty. Like it's not a Les Paul, it's something else. But he had this like knockoff, um, like Les Paul looking guitar. And I remember bringing both of the, like lugging uh, this huge amp up to my room, which didn't stay there long because it was too loud. Um, but I remember like just, very heavy yeah, amp as well. <laughs> I remember getting it to the plate to a point where like I had enough gain and garbage cranked up where I could get it chunky sounding and figured out bar chords. And I remember my dad coming in and being like, let me show you how to like finger pick. Let me show you how to like play guitar. And I'm like, no dad, I'm going to, I'm going to rock. Like, (laughs) let me do it. (laughs) I'm going to play basket case or when I come around. And, um, and so it was those. And then like the, I heard about the Ramones and obviously like any of those bands where it's four chords, right? Like you can figure it out. Like you said, like eventually we had tabs and, and, chords uh stuff that you could look up online and so we were able to kind of kind of learn it and read it um but it was a lot of that kind of mining and messing around until you figured it out um and then like finding like-minded people in your circle or in your school that also wanted to to do that kind of stuff and just feeding off of it and i got a pedal and and then suddenly i kind of could sound like those records um but yeah man like that that like punk resurgence in the like early to, to mid nineties, which led into pop punk was, it was, and I still love that, that era and that music. Like it was such a yeah. thing for me because it, it like gave me the feeling like I could be in those bands. Like we went to a garage and we made the music that yeah. those bands were on MTV performing. Yeah, totally. I, I had a very similar experience and it's, it's great when you can find a group of friends that also play and you know, because again, being mostly pre-internet, you learned how to play the songs that you couldn't figure out on your own by having other people teach you. So I ended up in a number of different, you know, bands throughout my middle and high school years. And it wasn't until I kind of tried to on purpose branch out and learn more. I took I took lessons for guitar for about six months or so, and um, I was like, I want to learn, I want to learn Stairway to Heaven. Oh man! And my guitar teacher was like, Are you sure? Because you don't practice. <laughs> 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 he's, like, 
He's like, I don't, I'm happy to teach you, but I don't want to waste my time. And, and, you know, I can tell when you come in here that you don't practice or you at least don't practice the drills and the, the things that I wanted you to practice yeah. You're practicing other stuff. Yeah. Cause I would come into the guitar lesson and be like, Hey, listen to this. And then be like, I figured out beat on the brat or something. <laughs> so, um, but he, he, I, I wanted to expand what I could do. So I sat down and I actually, you know, practiced it and he showed me, you know, the, the, the correct fingering. And, uh, to this day, I still can play, you know, the, the entry, the intro to, so you learned it, you learned it. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I saw Wayne's world and I was like, Oh no, I'm not allowed to play that song. My dad, um, my dad actually plays music. Like he's the music director at our church and, um, and he will just cause he's being fun or whatever, like he's noodling around. You'll definitely hear that and other things that like get mixed into his like generic noodling. Like he'll just like, you, oh, you'll yeah. see heads turn where like he's playing Zeppelin over there. Like what is going on? And then he'll like move on to something <laughs> else. It's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's, that's uh, involuntary just because yeah. it's inside of you. Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's sometimes where that's intentional. I've had those experiences before as well. Cool. We've got a lot of these questions, but if, if we keep uh, going through these questions, which I'm really, really enjoying and are sparking fantastic conversation. But this episode will be three hours long if you go through all of these. So that's actually a good thing. We can save a lot of these for future episodes. For sure. And uh, I definitely think we're about ready to flip it over and uh, listen to side B. Let's do do it. Let's do it. sticking with us and flipping over to side B. And right now we're going to get into some new music from some, I guess you could call retro artists. I know it's, it's hard to think about, you know, artists that kind of started to make themselves known in the early 2000s as, as, you know, classic or retro, but it's been 20 years, man. It's, it's crazy to, to uh, think about how much time has elapsed. Yeah, I mean, especially when there's so much conversation about um, new music, as there should be. Like, I do still love listening to pop radio and Top 40 or whatever and hearing what's happening now and and the resurgence of certain sounds and the inventions of others. But Mm -hmm. I do um, think there's a lot to be said about putting a spotlight on these artists that we we grew up with um, or we grew up inspired by. um, And they're still out there. They're making great music. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it's, I think it's important to kind of, it, it's easy to lose sight of that when there's so much music coming out now. Um, yeah. sometimes you don't even realize, I mean, this first one I have marked here, um, the Counting Crows, 
Uh, I didn't even know. Oh, yeah. I didn't know for a few years that they put out a new album in 2014. Um, I was talking to a buddy of mine. And it was a couple weeks ago because when I, I heard that there was new music coming out, um, they put out a, a new uh, four-song EP called Butter Miracle Sweet Two, a uh, Sweet One rather, and. I was saying, man, it's been a long time because the last album I remembered was a covers album of obscure, like deep cuts that they just wanted to perform. Like they didn't do the normal mm-hmm. hit hits uh, and whatnot. They just they pulled random songs and, and played that. And they're also a band that when they tour, they jam. They don't play the hits. Uh, some people get really upset about it, so you might not <laughs> hear Mr. Jones. Um, of course not. They're yeah. probably so sick of that song. <laughs> they are, yeah, for sure. And so uh, I was saying that it's been so long, and he's like, well, it's it's only been like six or seven years, which is still a long time. Um, and, and I had to go back and rediscover that there was a new album in 2014. So stuff can pass you by uh, very easily, but uh, Counting Crows is just... Um, I've, I've had an on and off, uh, history with, with them. Um, you know, I was a big fan of theirs in, in high school and then kind of fell off in college and and was re-exposed to them, um, you know, just outside of college. Uh, and they're just, they're talented. I mean, it's a big group of, of, it's a big band. It's like seven or eight guys. Um, but it's, you know, it's Adam Duritz's brainchild. Um, the new singles, Elevator Boots, it really feels like just classic Counting Crows. You can tell he went off and recorded it or, or came up and was inspired. He like camped out on a farm in England and uh, just wrote by himself, like all alone. And it came to him. Oh, wow. um, so it's four songs only. There's, they're meant to be listened to front to back. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Definitely worth a listen. Yeah. I need to check out the EP. I heard the single on, uh, the local station here, KUTX, but, um, and I, and I liked it, but it made me think back. And that first County Crows record was my first CD that I ever purchased. Oh man. And so that was, you know, because it was my first CD, that's the only one that I had for quite a while. And, uh, so I have really fond memories of that album and learning to play songs off of that album. Um, but after that, I kind of, you know, went into my, you know, punk and noisy, you know, experimental rock phase and never really, never really caught back up with what they were doing. Um, but now I'm definitely going to check out that EP. That sounds, yeah. you know, plus but, I'm a, you know, I'm an older dude. I'm a dad now, so it might be closer to some of the dad rock that for sure that I'm more w- acquainted with now. Yeah. Well, speaking of a band that you probably then were, were, uh, slipping over to. So Weezer, I mean, just prolific always, right? Like I think the biggest gap was between the second and third album. Um, just like yeah. historically, I think it was five years. Um, and then there's never been it's just to think that so the green album was in 2001 so we're 20 years yep. now um into it from that album which is the third album um and we haven't gone two or three years without having new a new proper release from weezer um and then they've always put out other random one-offs and singles and stuff um just just constantly cranking stuff out reinventing themselves um a band yeah. a band that I feel like we're going to get into a similar conversation when we talk about the Black Keys, but um, have always kind of 
had to cope with people looking back on some of their earlier recordings and asking why they can't just do that again. Um, right, right. But if you if you go through uh, their discography, the 15 albums now, um, there's so much there and there's so much diversity. And if you if you can just resign or allow yourself to kind of go on that trip with that band to just let Rivers and those guys do what they want. Um, there's just there's a ton of gold, man. That guy is he's, he's fantastic. Legend. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I'm, I'm probably still the, the needle for me is just slightly more in the camp of, you know, ignoring anything that happened after Pinkerton. Yeah. And I, and I try not to be that guy, but, um, you know, you make a good point in that, you know, the, the songwriting speaks for itself. And of course there's always going to be some stinkers, but, um, there, there are some really good songs, um, uh, if you dig for them. And I, you know, I remember seeing Weezer at a small club in Boston. Uh, I believe it would have been 99 or 2000. And they, they played at the Axis. And um, it's just a small 2000 person club, like right across the street from Fenway Park. And I had seen them previously um, in concert, opening up for No Doubt, actually, when they were touring for Pinkerton. Mm-hmm. But this was before the green album came out. So it was, they were playing with a lot of these kind of newer songs that didn't sound really anything like Pinkerton right? and sounded more like they were trying to get back to the more, you know, pop sensibility songs from the blue album. Right. And, um, it was a little bit surreal. It was interesting Actually, I had heard a few of the songs before because this was in the very early days of Napster, where you might be able to search for an artist and find some, you know, weird, like, oh, someone recorded them playing this song and, and then turned the, it into an MP3 and put it on Napster. Yeah, and the song title's wrong, like you're calling yeah. it one thing and it's not that at all, yeah. Exactly, because it's just some kid putting it in there, so... yeah. Um, but that that was an interesting experience, and then when Green Album came out, it, I do remember being disappointed. Yeah, and not that there weren't good songs on the album, sure. and you know, one or two of those songs we actually played in the band that I was in at the time. Oh man! Um, but just because I think I was such a huge Weezer fan, you know, from when you know the Blue Album blew up and Pinkerton came out, I was a huge fan of Pinkerton. And I think it was just because it was during those really early formative years that the later stuff, it doesn't quite connect with me, Mm -hmm. even though I can say, okay, objectively, this is a good song. It just doesn't like, you know, shred my, my heart like Pinkerton does. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that for sure. Um, I feel like I know Dan's a massive fan. Um, so I feel like we could, we'll save the rest of the Weezer talk for, uh, for a future episode when we get to hang with him. Definitely. Um, but I will point out that, um, they're a band like many others right now that are about to hit the road. Um, they're going out with with Green Day and Fall Out Boy, all of whom are like managed by the same company. It's the Hella Mega Tour, and um, it's it's the kind of thing where when I think of how long it's been since I haven't been to a concert, I'm not oh, one God. for for big arena shows. Like that's not usually no. my style. But I do think like I think that there's something appealing about just maybe going to one bombastic over the top 
hit laden beat you over the head concert this later this year to just be like all right it's been so long let me just yeah. do a blowout get um, back into and it and that and that lineup while it it's cheesy like there's also if the, if the set list is right for those three bands it it could be fantastic so check out the hella mega tour it looks like it's going to be it was supposed to happen in 2020 like 2019 to 2020 and obviously everything got pushed so um so yeah they're they're ready to yeah. go um, and I, I'm definitely not the biggest Green Day fan, but they put on an excellent live show. For they sure. They put on a fantastic live show. Yeah. Um, and then I think one more that I'd throw out here. I mean, there's a ton of great stuff. There's Wallflowers and Garbage. I mean, Billy Gibbons has got a new solo album, which is you know, yep. it's just it's just going to be great. Um, but I think also we'll touch on him when we're talking Black Keys, too. Um, For sure. But I, I would mention Modest Mouse. I mean, they just they're, you know. They had their their hit moment. Um, they probably had like two or three songs that you could qualify as hits, right? But they've always been yeah. producing good, like you you know a Modest Mouse song when you hear it. Um, and they do disappear for a little while. They're a band that like there will be four or five years between an album, um, but they're consistent. Yeah. They're consistent to me. It's it's akin to the Mountain Goats, where like I will just order the vinyl or just buy the music or whatever it is without really hearing much from it. Cause I know that even if it's a departure, it's not going to be so alienating that, um, that it's going to, that I'm not going to like it, that I'm going to regret spending the 13, 14 bucks on the CD right. or whatever it is. Um, I, I kind of trust, I, I know what they make and I like what they make. So, um, yeah, new album is coming out in June. There's a new single out now. It's called we are between, um, they just they haven't they're, heard it yet. Yeah, they're great. Definitely worth checking out. I'll need to check out the single. Yeah, they they're one of the few groups kind of from that indie surge in the late 90s early 2000s that actually, you know, kept making music. Yeah. And didn't, you know, but drug I've, overdose or <laughs> or, you know, just fall apart. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I was never the biggest fan, but the the stuff that I did hear, I really did uh, like and appreciate what they were doing. Yeah. So um, I'm glad they're still making music and I, I'm definitely uh, looking forward to hearing the new album. Yeah, I think that they're viewed probably uh, in in the history books of pop music as a one hit wonder, probably. Um, and and you could say the same for a band like Death Cab for Cutie, uh, who are in a similar boat. They've just like they made a bunch of albums they before they came famous. Music. Yep, they just kept doing mm -hmm. it, and every once in a while, it came back around. Um, so yeah, so definitely worth checking that out. Um, and then our our main thing that we're going to be talking about here, which is Black Keys Delta Cream. Yes. Oh my goodness. So. I don't know how much you've gotten to um, dig into it, but I literally just randomly happened upon the fact that they even had a new album. Mm -hmm. I don't, I've just been in such a mode of not paying attention to what new stuff is coming out. At least I was in these last you know couple of months with so much going on um, that I, I stumbled upon it because I wanted to listen to a particular album of theirs and when you go to their page on apple music oh they have a new album coming yeah. out and so i didn't even know at first what they were doing which is going back to their roots mm -hmm. and putting out an album of mississippi delta blues covers front to back and it's if you 
are like me and picked up as a Black Keys fan with Brothers or anything after that, this album is going to sound very different from the Black Keys that you're used to. And the reason for that is they literally went back to their roots playing Delta blues covers. And it was interesting to go back and research, you know, most of the album consists of junior Kimbrough songs. It's like half of the album is junior Kimbrough or RL Burnside. Yeah. And not only that, but they had RLs and junior Kimbrough's um, couple of their their studio musicians, musicians that they would play with, sit in on the record with them. Yeah. And that just adds a whole nother air to it. It's really, really cool. It's a very laid back album. It is more in line with their early work. If you go back and listen to their first record, Mm -hmm. it's more similar to that because you go back to the first record and, oh, look, a Junior Kimbrough cover. Yeah. So with that kind of more rhythmic... You kind of just picture them leaning back in a chair in the studio. You know, they're not necessarily rocking out like the last record. Um, they are just in the pocket, and it's kind of interesting to listen to the kind of there's that studio banter right at the beginning, right? Where you hear like the oh, "Are you ready?" and he'll go "Yep," and then they kind of like start the song. You know what I mean? It's it's more loosey goosey. Um, sometimes some of the endings are a little bit sloppy toward mm-hmm. it, it. You can almost picture them being like looking at each other, like, yeah, this feels like a good place to stop. For and then sure. kind of fumbling at, but it's still a super high quality record, but yeah. it's not, you know, polished. And, and that, I think that's, what's so great about it actually. Yeah. I'd say, so if you go back to that first album, which was their demos that kind of turned into that, um, I mean, there was a, a Muddy Waters cover, there was a Beatles cover, there was a junior cover and RL Burnside, like that's mm-hmm. what their, their bread and butter was, um, was on that. Um, and that was at a time just like, I, I think that those parts of Delta Cream are a callback to their first four albums really being done in a very DIY manner. I mean, three of them yeah. were just done in a basement with a eight track recorder. Um, and they were, so yeah. they, they were basically doing that before. Um, I think that there's a little bit of a, of a bristling, like I said earlier, I think that there are some people who just wish that they would go back and do Thick Freak Freakness again. Um, right. And, I think that when you put that record on with this one, you can hear the difference. Um, I mean, that the last album, I'll say, Let's Rock, um, I actually missed initially. And then when I heard it, I decided to buy that on vinyl because yeah. I knew that I would just want to sit there and listen to that whole thing. Whereas El Camino, yes. El Camino, I have on CD. I'm going to, it's a great album cover to cover, but there's songs that I want to hear on that. Um, and so, you you get that production value that they've kind of crafted um, since having to do this in uh, in a basement or as in the third one in an actual old factory that they rented out. Um, and mm-hmm. instead, you have the sentiment and the licks and the chops of that and the respect, I should say, of those early yeah. recordings. But it does have that sheen on it of 
it, it's it's high quality, man. It is it is clean yeah. and it, the grittiness is clean. Like it is it, it is right. so well put together, um, and uh, and it it doesn't it it retains some of that DIY feel, but definitely is uh, uh it it, tur- it takes these songs and makes them into something that you could hear at a stadium show or at a big uh, a big arena or something. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So with with all of the um, you know, emphasis in the, in the last few years on, you know, artists using samples and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, really highly polished digital everything that I think this album is particularly refreshing with just their approach to it. You know what I mean? Four guys in a studio, one take, let's just, let's just bang out some songs recorded over something like two days, two or three days. Yeah. And boom, it's a, it's a dope record. I also really like where this band is at right now. Um, I mean, they you could said, do anything. Yeah. But you said you, like you said, you came in at, at brothers, which at this yeah. point was, I think that was 2008, um, something like that. So that is, uh, we're looking at like almost 15 years ago. Um, when like attack and release and brothers and El Camino were all coming out and they broke through. Um, but they had those, those massive hits and that like explosive success going from fat possum, which is, you know, historically like from the nineties, uh, a Delta blues label, or it was founded as that. And then they got signed to that label, um, yep. and then launched their career on Warner or on none such part of Warner. Um, and so they, uh, they've, they grew this kind of sound, um, that has, I think then they took a break, like they stopped, um, turn blue came out. They had a bunch of stuff going on. You could kind of feel that each of them had desires of what they wanted to do. There's some psychedelia that's going on, on turn blue that when you listen to Dan's solo album, um, and when you listen to the arcs, the other band that he founded, um, you can kind of hear him getting that out and messing around with that and getting his hands dirty over there. Um, and Pat has gone and produced a bunch of great records. He did, um, Mm -hmm. He did a great one with Tennis, who was also on Fat Possum, but they're a great indie band. Um, He did Michelle Branch's album. Um, so, and, and he's played drums. Yeah, in that's a couple his wife bands. actually. Yeah, that's his wife. For those yeah. that don't know, yeah. yeah, the drummer for the Black Keys married Michelle Branch. That's right. Yeah, there's um, some little music trivia for you. And so, uh, so it seems like they needed to go off. Um, you know, they had their trajectory, and I think they needed to go off. And then when they came back for the Let's Rock, it was it was still had that blues heritage, but it felt, I mean, for me, I heard ZZ Top all over it, man. I like it, the fuzz, the fuzz and like the just attitude of that album. Garage rock. Yeah. It was so good. Um, and, and then to have this be the follow-up and obviously the pandemic has kind of impacted everybody's trajectory on what they are doing, but to have this as the follow-up just seems so perfect. Um, for them to kind of go back, revisit their roots with this new kind of reinvigorated perspective 
as a band. Um, I mean, this is a band that at their heights was being licensed for Victoria's Secret commercials and <laughs> Nissan commercials. And yeah. dude, like they actually made quote unquote selling out cool where it was just like, we, we have such a unique sound and we don't care and just go for it. Yeah. And it was so big. I don't know if you remember this at all, but there was a Pizza Hut commercial that like, I remember hearing that and being like, dude, what is going on right now? And then there was an actual lawsuit over it because it's one of those things. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where it wasn't the actual recorded material, but it was um, oh. it, it, like it sounded. If you, you should go back and find the pizza thing. We'll stick it in the show notes. You can find it on YouTube. But when you listen to it, it's gold on the ceiling. But it's like either they just sampled it in a way or they just had somebody record something that sounded so much like it that they didn't have to pay the band and the band sued yeah. Pizza Hut and it turned into a whole thing. So wow. they're, they're a band that were at that level um, yeah. and are still there. I mean, I, if you try to list off, you know, the 10 biggest rock bands that are currently like of, of recent mind um, that are currently touring, they're probably still up there. I mean, like you think oh, about the Foo, the Foo Fighters and whatnot, but like the Black Keys are still selling out arenas, still like big, massive touring uh, generators. And uh, oh yeah, I can't. Wait I to had see tickets what they do next. to go see them with um, Gary Clark Jr. last summer before oh, that show got canceled. Which I'm still, you know, obviously it's understandable, but mm -hmm. I'm still upset about missing that show. Um, and yeah, it was the kind of thing where those tickets went fast. Yeah. And, um, and that's going to be a that, great show, by the way, I, I'm assuming they're going to reschedule oh, it. Have they, have I they hope anything? so. I yeah. haven't gotten any announcements about it yet, but I, I will, you know, pay the ridiculous amount of money that I paid, you know, again, Yeah. thankfully got refunded, of course, but yeah. I, I will definitely go see that show. Yeah. Gary Clark Jr. is a beast, man. I mean, if you talk about somebody not to go off on a tangent, but you talk about somebody who's just. We love tangents. Uh, just carrying like the torch of so many different great uh, genres, obviously blues, but even just Hendrix level rock and whatnot. Like there's just oh, yeah. so many things that that guy embodies. Um, I, I, my, I bought my parents tickets. I, did, I should have bought myself one, but it was like a present. Uh, I bought my parents tickets <laughs> to an Eric Clapton concert a, a few years back. And he was, oh, wow. he was opening and I was like, you just need to make sure you get there early because they're like, hey, we're going to go out to dinner. We're going to spend some time, whatever. We'll slip in when it's time. I'm like, no, you need to be there for Gary Clark. You don't want to miss Gary Clark Jr. Um, and my dad, again, a guitarist, came back and he was like, yeah, that's that's a good call. Yeah, that was fantastic. That guy, <laughs> that guy's insane. His stage presence is is he's got a weird bravado to it um, that my dad didn't dig, but I love I love a front man too. I love a swagger, um, and yeah. and he's great. And obviously, Eric Clapton's a, a legend. But um, but yeah, like I was yeah. like dad, like trying to get your dad or your parents to listen <laughs> to some stuff sometimes as a process. Yeah. Um, so I well, get one of those wins. Stuff like the Black Keys and Gary Clark Jr., if if there is a common thread mm -hmm. that they would appreciate, it's a lot easier to be like, hey, you like, you know, such and such. You like Eric Clapton, you're going to like this. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Yeah. And so that's that's what I've used throughout the years to get people into something that they might not immediately want to invest the time to right. find out about on their own. Right. 
Well, All right. I, I would definitely suggest people check it out. I also, I just can't wait to see what they do next. I mean, this band did three albums, some of their biggest, with Danger Mouse, but then decided not to go back to that well for the last one and, and not for this one either. So I'm interested to see. This could be one of those things where they try to go back to Danger Mouse again, um, or they, I, I mean... Uh, a future episode, we should talk about different producers a bunch because pr- producers, if people aren't cued in, are just additional. Like they're so impactful on your favorite bands and your favorite albums. Um, and I, I, there's a part of me that would be interested to see what the new focus of the Black Keys would do with Danger Mouse, who helped them curate their massive hits. But there's mm-hmm. a part of me that doesn't want them to go back there. There's a part of me that just says. That happened, and it was what it was. Those songs are always there, and now go sit with somebody else. You know, now go go figure something else out. Um, so I'm I'm excited to see what happens. I agree with that. It, as much of a fan of Danger Mouse as I am, I definitely agree with you. You know, the Turn Blue is amazing and you know unique mm-hmm. for them, and I'm very glad that they did it. And I love that album. Um, but yeah, let's, let's see what they do with Rick Ross. You know what I mean? Let's see what they do with, with other producers. (laughs) You know what I mean? That black rock, that black rock album with Dame Dash, it had Q-Tip on it and Talib. Like that's one that slipped under my radar when it first came out, but they did a hip hop album back in 2009, 2010. Um, Mm -hmm. like Dame Dash, uh, Damon Dash, sorry. Uh, Damon Dash heard about them and decided he wanted to do a project with them and brought in, I mean, you look at the lineup on that and it's bananas. So should check out black rock as well too. Um, so before we wrap up here, I, I do kind of want to put you on the spot with one thing, though, in this conversation. Um, House is on fire. You've got every Black Keys album spread out in front of you. <laughs> Which one are you grabbing out to run out the door with? Like, what's the one album that you're like, I, uh, I, I have to have it? And I could start if you want a second to think about it. So... I'm I'm gonna go with my my like first initial thought, so I'm not overthinking sure. this and visualizing it in my brain. I grabbed Brothers, okay, and yeah. it may simply be because that was my first Black Keys record, mm-hmm. and I can still to this day listen to it front to back, and then just want to start it from the very beginning all over again. Yeah, and I love a bunch of their records, but. Uh, and it, it it literally could simply be the fact that that's the first album of theirs that I had, so I'm just gonna stick with that. Right. Well, I so I'm actually gonna go similar, kind of similarly. I I probably will do the cheesy thing and grab El Camino. Um, it's no, you know, it's not cheesy. I, I, it's, uh, Thick Freakness, Rubber Factory is great. Like those early records are fantastic, and I am revisiting and loving uh, Let's Rock right now, and that might uh, in in the future kind of supersede this. But El Camino to me, it's just they figured it out. You know, they they had done Brothers, yeah. and Brothers was such a, a home run for them. 
and they quickly went back into the studio. They didn't go out. I, I think they were a little burnt out too, but instead of doing that like long cycle to the next thing, they just went back into the out, the studio and and cranked out this album that has just hit after hit after hit and and the in-between songs are great too. Um I know, like I said, like I, I jump around on that album. I don't listen cover to cover, but man, mm. like what they pulled off on that album. Like, I think that that's going to go down in history for them as just like, it's such a moment in time and in music, like the impact that they had, I'm sure on, oh, on sure. future generations with some of those songs you hear gold on the ceiling or little black submarines or lonely boy. Like it's just, it's insane that a band that sounds like that blew up so big when they did yeah. um, and just they hit the mark because you hear those early songs that they did that like rough, but it's it's got soul um, and it just like it feels like things clicked. It feels like yep. between Danger Mouse and those two guys, they just figured out the formula and they baked it and it came out perfect. Um, so, yeah, they so that, that that's that's my like like house on fire. I've got your house is on fire <laughs> album. <laughs> I'd be grabbing everything, but for sure, you know, yeah, I, yeah. Kids, I cats, get the whatever, thought yeah. exercise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool, man. This was great. Absolutely, and I want to thank all of y'all for listening in, and uh, hope you enjoyed it because we are going to continue. And if there's albums or bands that you'd like us to talk about, you can uh, join the Discord. But this has been retro groove we are part of the retro logic network check out the website retrologic.games for social links merch community and more that's who we're connected with right now awesome little community of uh you know retro gamers and uh music fans and the like and we're we would be excited for you to join the community with us thanks for listening y'all have a safe week <laughs>